0: This is episode 233 of the IDRA Class Notes podcast.
1: I was on the stand and I remember the state's lawyer hammering away at me about, well, how close to equity is close enough? How close to equalization would you all like be willing to accept? I told the lawyer, it's either an equitable funding system or it's not. We were never interested in being reasonable because we had the audacity to believe that it was possible to have an equitable school funding system for all kids.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to our 50th anniversary edition of the IDRA Class Notes podcast. I'm Selena Moreno, IDRA's president and CEO, and we're continuing our series of episodes on education and the law, where we are highlighting our nation's landmark civil rights legal milestones. And I'm here today with a very, very special guest who longtime Class Notes listeners will recognize Dr. Albert Cortez, who is IDRA's retired director of policy and former school finance director who joined IDRA in 1975 under IDRA's founder, Dr. Jose Cárdenas, a former Edgewood ISD superintendent, which is a district that was at the center of the case that we'll be focusing on today, the historic and infamous case of San Antonio ISD versus Rodriguez. This case, uh, like IDRA, turns 50 years old this year. And although these podcasts are typically audio only in honor of IDRA's 50th anniversary, we're going to be publishing our complete video conversation with Dr. Cortez today. Dr. Cortez, I'm very excited to welcome you back.
1: Thank you very much, Celine. I'm very glad to to join you all for this, uh, I think, really important conversation.
0: Thank you so much. And for more than three decades, Dr. Cortez, you have served... Uh, As a national treasure, um, a real treasure trove of technical expertise, just your very fascinating lived experience, and of course, your unwavering commitment to school finance reform, to the education of emergent bilingual students, to dropout prevention, school discipline, higher ed, and so many other issues. And I personally had the honor of working with you in in several different roles. I, I miss our days walking the halls of the Texas Capitol as leads of the Texas Latino Education Coalition, TLEC, as, you know, litigator doing trial prep when you were our, our star witness in the Texas school finance cases. And, you know, of course, now somebody that continues to learn from you, as does our whole team here at IDRA. So we just are so grateful for your generosity of time and energy and your continued mentorship of our team. Let's jump in.
1: Okay, Selena.
0: I think we should start from the beginning. I mentioned that you worked with our founder, Dr. Jose Cárdenas, who was the superintendent of Edward ISD at the time the Rodriguez case was filed by parents in 1968. Well, he, I think he joined right after that, actually. He was a transformative figure in the reform of public school financing in Texas from the preparation of the federal trial of the Rodriguez case. And then of course, with you, many state level school finance cases after that, uh, as well as just groundbreaking Texas law that, that was enacted afterward. You worked hand in hand with him, Dr. Cortes, across decades, and he has credited his work with you specifically for such significant improvements in school funding equity in Texas. Can you tell us how you met Dr. Cardenas?
1: Well. It was interesting because you know, as part of the background in terms of our conversation, I was a student at John F. Kennedy High School in the Edgewood School District at the time that Dr. Cardenas was, I think, vice principal over at the rival school in the district, Edgewood High School. But I really hadn't met him until I was in college in a bilingual teacher preparation program named Project Teacher Excellence where I graduated in 1971. And so I met him as, as one of our speakers at, at an event. And then I got a call from one of the IDRA staff in 1975 that they were recruiting for some new projects that they had just gotten funded, including one that would work with school districts on preparing comprehensive plans to serve ELL students because of a, another ruling involving emergent bilingual students known as Lau versus Nichols that had just uh, gone down, I think about 1973 or 74. So I got that call and I decided I, I would go and, and apply at, at IDRA. And of course, the person making the calls on who would join the organization were uh, two key people, Dr. Blandina Cardenas, who became the director of the Lao Center. And Dr. Jose Cardenas was our executive director. I interviewed with both of them. And after my probably 20, 30 minute conversation with Dr. Cardenas, uh, he offered me the opportunity to join staff.
0: Well, we're so fortunate that you and Dr. Cardenas were able to connect. And so are Texas students. I want to move And now to this pivotal moment in IDRA and U.S. history, really, uh, which is the filing of the Rodriguez case, and I wanted you to share a little bit of context with me and with our listeners of what was happening in Edgewood and in San Antonio schools in general, and you know, in and around 1968 when the case was filed.
1: Well, the the filing of the case actually came after a group of students actually walked out of Edgewood. A high school and was joined by other high schools around the state uh, to protest what they felt was inadequate and inequitable education that was being provided primarily to Mexican-American students in low-wealth school districts. Following that walkout, a group of, of Edgewood parents started committing meetings and decided that they wanted to file a federal lawsuit challenging the inequalities in the funding system that was created by the Texas system of school finance. The lead lawyer in that case, that was the lawyer for the Edgewood Concerned Citizens Group, was a lawyer named Gotchman. And when they first filed the suit, they named as plaintiffs the surrounding districts around Edgewood that they thought were wealthier school districts. And the intention as I learned from Dr. Caranas and others that worked on the case was to force consolidation of all of the San Antonio area school districts. But they hadn't realized at the time though was that most of the districts other than a couple in the county and in San Antonio proper were low wealth school districts. And Dr. Caranas and the Edgewood lawyer who was Gregory Luna, who eventually became a state representative and a champion for equity in both the state house and the state senate, they met with the concerned parent groups and Mr. Gotchman and explained that if you consolidated all of the school districts in the city that they were referencing, that essentially you would be merging poor districts with poor districts and wind up with just one large poor district, and we would not get at the fundamental problems that created the inequalities and underfunding in the system.
0: You know, that's such an interesting point. And, you know, Edgewood ISD is oftentimes in San Antonio. For those of us who are from the city, you know, is often compared with another school district, a property wealthy school district, Alamo Heights. Can you tell us a little bit about what the disparities look like, you know, in terms of per student spending, and, and really what that meant on the ground. What did that look like in schools there, including what that looked like for you as, as a former student of Kennedy High School in the Edgewood ISD? You
1: know, the difference in, in property wealth was that Elmo Heights uh, had $45,000 in property wealth per student compared to $5,000 in wealth per student in Edgewood. So the ratio in wealth was nine to one. The ratio in spending per student between Alamo Heights, Alamo Heights spent about $650 per student back in, in 1968. Edgewood was spending about 300 So there was a two-to-one difference in spending per pupil. What make matters worse is that the tax rates in Alamo Heights were half of what the tax rates were in Edgewood. And despite the fact that Edgewood had a higher tax rate, and its residents were paying more for educational programs, their children were getting less support because of the way the Texas system was funded, the way it operated. As an individual, I was very sensitive to it, both because I was a a student at Edgewood, but I had an opportunity to visit Alamo Heights when I did college recruitment for Our Lady of the Lake and did some work for Project Stay. And I had a chance to look at their great buildings, their huge auditorium with velvet seats, their nice uh, Olympic-sized swimming pool that was part of their facilities. And even when you were involved with interactions with, in competitions, for example, with the neighboring schools, you really saw the impact of the differences in funding at a gut level, and you knew that you were really not competing in a level playing field. But you just didn't know why.
0: Yeah, I've heard and, stories about so many classrooms in Edgewood didn't even have working air conditioning, and you know, just in terms of teacher and to student ratios, you know, shared textbooks among many students. So I, I appreciate you sharing a bit about your your own experience.
1: You know, we, and that was a very real thing. So you know, if I could interject for a second, we didn't have enough instructional materials at times I remember being in a typing class and there were not enough typewriters for all the students that were taking the class so the the keyboard was painted on some of the desks for those students that couldn't work with a typewriter needless to say I figured out that that was probably not going to be the best way uh, for me to learn how to uh, work on those machines and wound up dropping that class but that's just an example of how different the quality of instruction and and your point about teachers. We learned over time that the teachers in, in the wealthier school districts had higher levels of education, more master's degrees, more years of experience. And it was very difficult for lower wealth school districts like Edgewood to recruit the brightest and the best and the most experienced teachers because they couldn't provide comparable salary or benefits that were higher in the wealthier districts like Alamo Heights.
0: So students like you and parents like Demetrio Rodriguez and you know the organization, Edward Concerned Parent Association, what is it that everyone was hoping to achieve by filing the lawsuit? What did they want the courts to do?
1: The concerned parents groups, I think, had seen what happened with the federal decision in Brown versus Board of Education led to the desegregation of public schools. And my understanding is that they were hopeful that the federal court, using the Equal Protection Clause, could be convinced to intervene in the way states funded their public schools, and specifically in this case, the way Texas funded it, public schools, to force them to make them Uh, fair and more equitable for all students and certainly more equitable for poor and Mexican American students, which uh, the group felt were being severely punished by the existing system.
0: Now about the the defendants, you mentioned Brown v. Board of Education. And so similar to previous cases that we've discussed in our Education in the Law podcast series, Brown and v. Doe. Where you are our featured guest, I mean, those cases were consolidated, right? Because they presented the same issue. And in this case, the issue whether Texas's school finance system indeed violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And so the cases were consolidated under the San Antonio ISD versus Rodriguez banner in the US Supreme Court. You mentioned some of the strategy. To two different school districts. What was the rationale then uh, for shifting the focus to the state of Texas as the defendant, leaving only the state of Texas as the defendant?
1: As Dr. Cardenas and Greg Luna and others that were versed in the system talked to the edge with concerned parents about the suit they were filing, it became clear to them, as it was explained, that the problem was not the individual school districts, because they didn't have control over the way schools were funded in not only Texas, but around the country, that the lead player in deciding how and how equitably schools were to be financed was really up to the state. And after some discussion, the plaintiffs in the Rodriguez litigation, the edge with concerned parents, realized that the real culprit And the group that needed to be sued in this case was the state of Texas. And they made the decision to shift the focus from the surrounding districts as plaintiffs to making the state of Texas the defendant in the lawsuit.
0: You know, the the three-judge panel in the federal district court trial sided with the the plaintiffs. And, you know, there's a lot of reactions to it. What was it like? hearing about that case, being in there in the moment. And what did you see come out of that, both from in terms of research and politicians' reactions to the district court finding?
1: Well, there are two dimensions. First of all, because the case had been relatively a a low-key debate that took place in in the courts with some attention paid by the media, but very limited attention, the decision in that 1971 ruling by the three-judge panel came as a shock, especially to a lot of school districts around the state and also to the state of Texas, because even though they had been named plaintiffs and argued their side in the case, they frankly didn't do a very good job of defending something that frankly was indefensible. And the three-judge panel was provided in in the litigation with an opportunity, uh, not only the judge, But the people arguing the case and and eventually the media was given the opportunity to see how unfair and unequal educational funding was not only in districts in San Antonio, but districts around the state. Because among the evidence that was presented was not only the disparities between funding levels at Alamo Heights and Edgewood, but also between a sample of the 100 poorest and 100 wealthiest districts in the state and the patterns that you saw between Edgewood and Alamo Heights were repeated over and over when you compared the differences in spending between that larger group of school districts and when the federal judges in the case saw all the evidence that was presented they agreed with the plaintiffs that that education and access to equitable educational opportunity was a fundamental right in the federal constitution under the equal protection clause. And they also ruled that the level of inequity that existed in the state of Texas was unconstitutional and essentially mandated that the state of Texas make major changes to its funding system.
0: You know, the, the chairman of the Texas State Board of Education at the time called that federal court decision an atomic bomb. And there was a lot of controversial social science research at the time that tried to argue that money didn't matter. And even a New York Times news article from 1970 said, in the case of, of a quote-unquote slum child, you know his chances of learning to read were, were quite limited, even though large amounts of money might be devoted to his education. So essentially, there was research that were blaming poor families of color, and there was almost a racial hierarchy of intelligence being endorsed, even by... president, then-President Nixon. It's interesting, Dr. Cortez, that a Nixon appointee, Justice Powell, wrote the majority opinion in the 5-4 decision. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the U.S. Supreme Court in its majority decision held?
1: Well, as you know, Selena, not only did Powell, a Nixon appointee, uh, write the majority opinion, four out of the five justices that ruled against Edgewood in the 5-4 ruling were Nixon appointees. So it's interesting that it had a particular political bent in its uh, composition. Beyond that, what the court ruled was unfortunately that education was not a fundamental right protected under the Equal Protection Clause because it was not specifically referenced in the Constitution based on their judgment. Therefore, it left the funding of public schools and oversight over all activities related to public education other than those protected under federal law, under the jurisdiction of the states. They also, while they acknowledged that the Texas system was chaotic and unjust, because they looked at the level of inequality, they looked at the disparities, they looked at the differences in tax rate, and they acknowledged that all of that was there and that it was unfair and unequal, but they chose to say, based on their legal opinion, that despite all of those injustices and inequities, that it was not up to the federal courts to dictate to the state of Texas that it modify its state funding system. And so, in essence, they overturned the three-judge federal panel, and unfortunately, you talk of an atomic bomb, it was an atomic bomb against equity in all of the states around the country, because while the state of Texas sat on its hands and did nothing from 1968 to 1973, while it waited for a final ruling in the in the Rodriguez case, but there was a lot of other state litigation going on around the country, in California, in New Jersey, in other states. And the Rodriguez ruling essentially shut down the federal avenue to try to seek equity and turned the fight for school finance equity into a state-by-state battle, which continued, by the way, as you know, in Texas, even after the Rodriguez case was finalized.
0: So the Supreme Court majority said education is not a fundamental right. Poor people are not a suspect class under the Equal Protection Clause. It's not the court's place to to meddle in what they called complex formulas. But not everybody in the court agreed with the ruling, and, and I want to hear from you. You know what stood out to you in terms of the the dissent. You know, particularly from Justice Marshall, who had. Spearheaded the Brown v. Board litigation as a lawyer for the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Front.
1: As you noticed, uh, the dissenting opinion by Justice that you referenced was joined in in many ways by the four other justices that disagreed with the ruling. And what the dissenting opinion noted was that education was such a critical part of providing opportunities for anyone going through any educational system. And to not provide equitable and sufficient educational funding really would relegate many of these children to second-class citizenship, because it wouldn't provide the learning opportunities, which in turn would impact their opportunities to attend college, to get decent paying jobs, to seek further higher education, and and to improve the, the well-being of their families. So, as the justice noted in his dissent, he thought that the ruling in Rodriguez was actually very contrary to the positions taken in the earlier Brown versus Board of Education decision, and predicted that it would set back uh, educational opportunities for children all over the country, which I think was an accurate prediction.
0: Yeah, a real betrayal of Brown and seen by many legal scholars as one of the worst opinions since the civil rights era. But you do mention that, okay, once the Supreme Court ruled this way and bounced it to the state by state litigation, what impact you know, do you think you've seen from the ruling on school funding inside and outside the state of Texas, what did that state-by-state litigation look like, particularly in Texas? And, and we know that you were very, very um, involved in that as a key expert.
1: I think the, the the godfather of school finance reform in Texas was really Dr. Jose Cardenas. because after the ruling in seventy three, is when he decided to form an independent nonprofit organization to essentially tried to reverse the impact of the Rodriguez ruling here in Texas by forming first Texans for Educational Excellence, which eventually became IDRA in 1975. And the sole purpose of IDRA at its its inception was to do research on the extent of the problem that were uncovered by the Rodriguez delegation to inform the public, uh, policymakers, educators, parents and communities all over the state about not only the extent of the problem, but solutions, things that could be done to provide a lot more equity and opportunity for not only low-income and Mexican-American students who were the initiators of the challenge, but students of all races and ethnicities, all income levels, and essentially improve the equity and the quality of education for all children in the state of Texas. So as a result of forming the organization, then from 1973 to 1975, and even all the way up to 1977, Dr. Garnas did a lot of the groundbreaking research, pointing out the differences in property wealth in different school districts, the differences in spending levels in different school districts, the very unfair uh, system of property taxation in schools that resulted from the way Texas schools were funded and disseminating all of that research to all corners of the state. I came in uh, as the director of the Texas School Finance Reform Project in 1977, and essentially Dr. Gardena's handed over a lot of the day-to-day uh, doing what we used to call our dog-and-pony show all over the state of Texas. Anybody and everybody that called to uh, request a session on school finance reform, what the issues were, and what might be done about it, we went out. So I was out in West Texas, North Texas, South Texas, East Texas, rural towns, you know, major cities. I talked to uh, education groups. Interesting enough, we also got requests from legislators who wanted to be more informed about issues that they had to vote on during the, the Texas legislative sessions. And over time, we became technical resources to many members of the legislature, both in the House and Senate. But we spent decades basically educating anyone and everyone that was interested on the issue. But beyond that, you noted, we recognized after a few years that the state was moving very slowly because there was no litigation forcing it to equalize funding in the state of Texas until 1988 when the first Texas level, state level challenge to the funding system was filed in the Edgewood versus Kirby case. IDRA worked closely with MALDEF and other groups in actually framing the challenge to the existing funding system. And we also served as expert witnesses, especially Dr. Caranas in the early cases. And I came in, I think, starting with Edgewood too, and moving forward, providing technical testimony in the litigation, of which when Edgewood versus Kirby was finally decided, essentially it totally Overruled at a state level, what the Rodriguez position had been, and in the Edward versus Kirby case, the system was found to be unconstitutional. That education was a fundamental right, and that the gross inequities that were uncovered during the litigation needed to be addressed by the legislature.
0: And Dr. Cortez, you were, you know, you were involved with Dr. Cardenas in in some of that that groundbreaking statutes that were enacted by the Texas legislature. Can you tell us a little bit more about what they did, you know, especially uh, one of the provisions that still gets the bulk of the attention today, which is a a recapture provision or what some people have dubbed Robin Hood?
1: Right. Uh, The state was finally pushed into adopting major educational reform. But frankly, it didn't occur after the Edgewood One decision. After Edgewood One, they came up with a plan that would do studies and make recommendations, but essentially not do any fundamental changes to the funding system. And that was challenged in Edgewood II. They lost Edgewood II when the court agreed. they really didn't do anything to fundamentally change the structure. They began to get serious in the early 1990s to make significant changes in the way the system was funded. It included providing substantially more state support of education and increasing the amount of the state share that was provided in support of public schools. At one time, it had fallen down in in the 30% range, which means that local school districts were carrying 70% of the burden. That was one of the things that was changed with the Edgewood decisions. The state began to play a much larger role and began to make much more significant investments in funding for public education. Among the changes that were made, a lot of the major changes were were first adopted in House Bill 72, which was adopted in 1984. But while some structural changes were made, the issue of equity was not sufficiently addressed in that major reform law, which did make a lot of improvements, but didn't go anywhere near enough to neutralizing the big differences in spending that you saw between low wealth and high wealth districts. At the time that law was passed, the wealthier districts in the state were still spending several thousand dollars more per student than the poor districts, despite the reforms that have been adopted. So with further legal challenges, the state eventually adopted what were called county education district formulas which essentially consolidated the tax basis of school districts on a county level and equalized funding across the state. IDRA was one of the authors and creators of that CED-based system, but the wealthy school district hated it. And they went back to court and essentially got the county education-based system, frankly, which to this day, I think was a better system more equitable, and probably more efficient. But that system was ruled unconstitutional by the Texas Supreme Court. And that led to the adoption of recapture. Because what the Supreme Court ruled in the county education district case is that local school districts and local citizens had been given the opportunity or options about sharing their wealth with lower wealth districts in the state. Recapture was a mechanism where essentially the local school districts voluntarily agreed to share excess revenue that they got, which is money that was over and above the level that was required to provide a good education for their kids, and that extra unequalized enrichment was recaptured by the state. Dr. Cardenas always took issue with the term Robin Hood, which was used to describe the recapture provision, because he he pointed out that the money didn't go directly to the low wealth School Districts. The money actually went to King John, which was the state of Texas. And it was the state of Texas then that was responsible for the collection of recapture revenue. But there was reason to be concerned about where that money went. And eventually there was... Additional legislation that needed to be passed that required the state to use a recapture money to provide increased funding for all public schools in the state of Texas.
0: So fast forward to to today, right? I often say that some Texans might do the two step, but our legislature does the Texas three step. First, it divests public schools of resources. Second, demonizes them as inadequate and harmful, and then third seeks to privatize them. And we're seeing that right now, right? The Texas governor and other state leaders are pushing for private school vouchers, this legislative session. So sometimes it does seem like we are going in the wrong direction from achieving what the goal of the Rodriguez case was, right? Which is to achieve education as a fundamental right under the U.S. But Dr. Cortes, I see you and Dr. Cardenas as a pragmatic optimist. And I'm, I think the Listeners, you know, want to hear from you. They might be educators or advocates, youth, and just people concerned about what what they're seeing right now. What do you say to them to encourage them to stay in or to join this fight for equitable school funding and for excellence?
1: One thing I would note is that if we compare where the system was at the beginning of, of the battle in Rodriguez, and then also, you know where it was in the battle in Edgewood versus Kirby. The system is a better system than it was back decades ago. And many of the advances that were made and the level of equity that was promoted in the system happened as a result of the battles that were waged by communities that were determined that the system of education needed to be fair for all kids, in all districts, regardless of where they lived. But the lesson that we had also learned and that, that we knew from our long experience with the Texas legislature is that just because you win a major battle, the battle doesn't end there because the opposition, the people that have a view that education should be unfair, that education should be unequal and that some children in this state deserve more opportunities than other children, that some children deserve better opportunities than other children. Those folks don't go away and their advocates and their supporters don't go away. And unfortunately, many of them are members of the state legislature, and unfortunately, sometimes members of the state political leadership. And they will continue to try to erode and eat away at whatever progress has been made And even as I talk about the progress that's been made, the system is still not fully equalized. There are still about 100 school districts that get an opportunity to spend what we call unequalized enrichment, which is money that nobody else can can raise because they don't have the same level of property wealth. And despite the fact that we improved the system a great deal and got it up to a much more equalized system for, let's say, about 85%, almost 90% of kids, there are still a subset of districts and students that have advantages over other children. And those districts, every session, go back and try to improve the advantage that they have. An example of that is one of the components that uh, provides for unequalized enrichment is included in the part of the system called Golden Pennies, And just a couple of sessions ago, the unequalized part, which are the golden pennies, was increased from $0.06 in terms of tax effort to $0.08. So it was increased by about 30% in terms of districts being able to raise more money because they had more wealth. Now, that is a small part of the overall system, but it is an equal part of the system that still needs to be corrected and addressed. And, and so I, I think that's an example of we have to be vigilant and understand that, that essentially the battle really never ends and that we have to monitor what is proposed by all groups, do research to see how it impacts fairness and equity in the system, and make our perspectives and our knowledge and our insights known to people not only in the legislature, but people around the state in different communities, because I'm thoroughly convinced that had the communities as a group around the state of Texas, including all the communities in the low wealth districts and moderate wealth districts that eventually supported equalization in the state of Texas. It was those efforts that led to a change in the funding system. You make references to current efforts to try to find ways around the progress that was made in Edgewood. The current push for vouchers is an example of that. So some families in some districts that had huge advantages because of differences in wealth that were neutralized in the reforms that were adopted now see vouchers as a way of getting the state to provide them funding to go and put their children in exclusive private schools that don't answer to anyone. But from the first rounds of voucher legislation, that what I recall is that the voucher programs that were proposed never promised to fully fund the voucher programs so that eventually the state was going to provide some amount of funding for vouchers, but it was going to be up to the parents to make up the difference between the full tuition at a private school and whatever the state provided. And that in turn was going to lead to the reality that some parents are going to be able to afford to send their children to private school, especially those with high wealth incomes, and those that didn't have high income levels were going to be excluded. Beyond that, when they talk about vouchers providing choice, the choice is going to be left up to the private schools. No one is going to require, I don't care what they might say in legislation, for a private run entity to accept children from public schools. So I think as as they offer this panacea for some people of a voucher program, somehow or other, improving public education. And I don't know how you, for example, make things better for a family that is underfunded by giving some of their money away to people that have more than they need, which is, I think, even essentially what, what vouchers do. So I think the message I would give to parents and educators and advocates and researchers, all those that follow this issue and have followed the issue, is that we must practice eternal vigilance and be ready to wage the battle if we have to wage the battle in order to make sure that our kids get a fair opportunity in life. One of the things that I wanted to make sure that we note is that IDRA was the first and only at one time major research and technical assistance organization that was exclusively devoted to providing equitable school funding for kids around the state. Eventually there were other groups that joined, uh, certainly the Equity Center, which by the way, was a spinoff of IDRA because Craig Foster, its original director was a former staff member Uh, and director of IDRA's Property Tax Project. And also, while school districts were not plaintiffs in the original Rodriguez case, they eventually joined the fight as plaintiffs in the state-level court cases. And so all those school board members, you know, superintendents, uh, but most importantly, the citizens, the moms and dads, the abuelitos, abuelitas, you know, tíos, atiás, the citizens that lived in those school districts really were the ones that prodded the legislature, frankly, by making sure that some of them were not going to be reelected if they didn't do something about the problem. So I think I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the important role that all those different groups played. Of course, not to forget groups like MALDEF, because while we might have had all the technical expertise and the research information, had we not had groups like Maldev and people like yourself and Al Kaufman and some of the lawyers for the Equity Center. I remember his last name was Woods. Without that combination of community, school districts, research you know, experts and legal experts. I think Edgewood and the progress that was made would not only never have happened, it probably would not continue if we don't continue to have all those different sectors of our communities involved.
0: Is there anything else that like, you absolutely have to get in there that we didn't talk about?
1: It's a real challenge to consolidate 40 years of advocacy and equity work. But uh, literally, it took that kind of incremental progress. And, and I think if there was a, a lesson to be learned, and maybe this is useful to be shared, is that there was no quit in any of the groups that we worked with, and certainly not on the part of IDRA staff and IDRA leadership. We were real clear that our ultimate objective was to bring about an equitable school finance system for all children in the state of Texas. And while I was on the stand, I'm not sure I ever shared this with you all, but at one point they were pushing for a magic number, some percentage of kids or districts that we could equalize up to that would satisfy the plaintiffs and satisfy the advocates. And I was on the stand and I remember the state's lawyer Hammering away at me about, well, how close to equity is close enough? Like, how close to equalization would you all like be willing to accept and essentially then like settle for? And I told the lawyer, it's either equal or it's not. It's either an equitable funding system or it's not. And later on, as I reflected on it in in my later years, to me it's comparable to saying, well, how much slavery is enough? So if we free. 90% of the people, is that good enough? It was insulting to be asked how many children and how many districts are you willing to sacrifice so that you can, quote, compromise and reach a reasonable settlement. We were never at IDRA, we were never interested in being reasonable. As a matter of fact, we were called unreasonable and unrealistic in more than one form because we had the audacity. To believe that it was possible to have an equitable school funding system for all kids. I believe that. I still believe that. I still think it's possible. And that's why I was making the point earlier that we aren't there yet. And so there is still some work to be done. In addition to fending off the attacks on equity, we still have a little bit of ways to go before we can say that Texas has a school funding system that is equitably funding all children in the state of Texas. So I'll close with that.
0: There is no quit. What a note to end on. You know, we, on our 50th anniversary, the battle continues, as you say, la lucha sigue. We still have so much work to do, but when I think about how far we have come from the time that you were a student in Edgewood ISD, you know, with your typewriter, the keyboard, drawn on your desk. I'm just so grateful, Dr. Cortes, for your service to IDRA and, and to all Texas students. And we look forward to welcoming you back as a returning champ. To our listeners, thank you for being with us on this 50th anniversary edition of our IDRA Class Notes podcast. You can find more information and resources about IDRA, about the Rodriguez case and about school finance policy and legal developments on the IDRA website. Thank you again. Adelante.
1: Thank you, Selena.
0: Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at